Well, June 24th, 2022 is a day that we will long remember. It's a day that the Supreme Court handed down a ruling declaring Roe v. Wade overruled. The reality that it is overruled, it is overruled in part precisely for the reason that the pro-life movement has been insisting upon from the beginning. There is actually no constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion. It doesn't exist in the Constitution. The framers of the Constitution in their words and intent never declared such a right. It was invented by those who sought to read into the words of the Constitution something that simply was not there. One of the big questions when it comes to the interpretation of the Constitution is whether or not it is static or dynamic. Ought the Constitution be interpreted based on the original intent of the framers as understood by the words and meanings of those words, or ought the Constitution be thought of as a living document, a guideline that should be interpreted in light of the pervasive thought of today? Those two ideologies form the divide between the liberal and conservative movements in the Supreme Court and elsewhere as the Constitution and rights granted by the Constitution are discussed. Well, the wording of the ruling is pretty clear. Quote, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives, end quote. Now, this does, not over, this does overrule the precedent that has been set during, due to Roe and Casey in those cases that were previously brought before the Supreme Court. It does return the obligation to decide on how abortion will be handled to each individual state instead of assuming that there is some constitutional right that's binding on the federal level. That is ultimately where the question should lie. In truth, the question is much deeper than that, and we know that it goes much further beyond the matter of a woman's right to choose since there is life within her body, which is not her and does not ultimately belong to her. God is the author of all life. He grants life in the womb. He has, in fact, given the womb to women for them, along with the father, to conceive life. Women are not the author of life, thus should not have the power to end life once it has begun. We call it conception for a reason. Women, as designed by God, bear children once they are conceived. All of that is a part of his grace. Now, I say all of that to raise a question that has come out of the proceedings. How should the church respond? How should believers respond? Certainly, there's been a great deal of celebration that Roe and Casey have been overturned. There's been a great deal of thanksgiving to God that clarification has been made by the Supreme Court. Yet the issue of abortion is not over. Abortions are still taking place, and if the left has its way, they will find a way to enshrine abortion in the fabric of our nation's law. But how should the church respond? When we celebrate, when we give thanks, what does that communicate? Does, does that communicate what we intend for it to communicate? I think that we intend for it to communicate, of course, is gratitude to God for the step. The fight is not over, but this is a monumental step in the process of protecting unborn life. It's never for us about taking away a right women have. Certainly women should not have the right to end life in the womb. But our focus is not on taking away women's rights. It is on protecting unborn life in the womb. Nevertheless, does our celebration communicate what we intend for it to communicate? Those who are pro-choice do not believe that there is life in the womb, or at least they say they do not believe it. They justify their position by emphasizing that the primary issue is a woman's ability to choose what to do with her body. 
They define abortion as health care and argue that women ought to have the right to any health care option she desires. On the face of it, then, they do not know what is ultimately at stake with regards to their ideology. They stand in opposition to the one who made them. They put themselves in danger with that ideology. But there is a better way. Again, how should the church respond? We could potentially look at any number of issues for that matter, LGBTQ plus issues, gender. The presented issue is an individual's right to choose what gender they want, an individual's right to choose to express their sexuality in whatever way they want. On the face of it, who would want to deny someone their wishes, whatever they desire? However, we believe that there is a fundamental issue with those desires. The fundamental issue is that God is the one who ultimately determines sexuality. God is the one who created us to be male and female. He made us complementary for each other by design, both for our good, for our comfort, for our joy, and for the propagation of human humanity. That is God's way. That is his will. Again, he is our maker. Thus, his will supersedes ours. It's not a matter of social construct or social taboo. The society does not create humanity. God has. Thus, his will should supersede all. Those who believe otherwise ultimately do not know what is at stake regarding their ideology. They're standing in direct opposition to the one who made them. They put themselves in danger with that ideology. Again, how should the church respond? Those are just the bigger ticket society-wide issues. There are many other things that we could examine. Other forms of murder, theft, adultery, abuse, racism. All of these things represent an ideology that supplants the truth and will of God. Those who hold to those ideologies don't seem to know what's at stake with regards to their ideology. Those ideologies put them in opposition to the God who made them. They are in danger with that ideology. Again, how should the church respond? Well, how do we often respond? When we get a victory, we celebrate. When there's a setback, we mourn. Certainly there are things to celebrate and things to mourn, but is that it? What exactly is our role in all of this? What is our duty to the world? I think some of it has to do with the biblical world biblical word godliness. Well, what is godliness? There are probably a number of things that flash through your mind when you hear that word. Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, the knowledge of the truth is in accord with godliness. In other words, the word of God, the word of truth, produces godly living. We are commanded to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, according to 1 Timothy 4, 7. And 2 Peter 1.3 states that we have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness through a true knowledge of God. The word of truth produces a knowledge of God, which knowledge should necessarily lead to godly living, both from the perspective of the work of God in us and his, our response to his work. So we should be people characterized by godliness. So again, what is godliness? If we're measured by it, we should know what it is. Godliness has been defined as, quote, an awesome respect accorded to God. I like that. I think that's close. Encountering God is a jaw-dropping experience. It's awe-inspiring. It's like watching a beautiful sunset. It's seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time or seeing a meteor shower in a night sky. You can't help but sit and stare at the wonder of it all. How about this definition? Godliness 
is the reality and power of a vital union with God. I like that too because it brings out the transformational nature of our relationship with God. We all have those changes in life that dramatically affect who we are. We talk about those things that happen to us after which we are never the same. Encountering the person of God is like that. It's not just that you are awed by him at some point in the past. It's that your encounter with him produces something different in you. Well, I'd like to wrap both aspects up into a a solid definition in this way. Godliness is devotion to the person of God, which leads to a display of the character of God in the works and words of a believer. In other words, godliness is a believer's appreciation of and application of God's character in everyday life. It's the appreciation of God's character and it's the application of God's character in everyday life. The question is, are you a godly person? Are you awestruck by the person of God? Do you stand in awe at his goodness, at his greatness, at his glory? Are you filled with a deep-seated respect for him? Does your encounter of him consistently produce fruit in your life? you both appreciate and apply his character to your life. Now, I don't mean only when you're in the company of believers. What about when you're in the company of unbelievers? And to the point of my initial question, how do you respond to the ungodliness of others? How is your awe-filled respect for the person of God then? Does his character continue to shine through you when you have to respond to the ungodliness of others around you? Let me ask you this question. How do you summarize the character of God if you're asked? If we should be responding to his character, if we should be reflecting his character, how do we define his character? Well, we'll get to this later in our study of Jonah, but Jonah summarizes the character of God in chapter 4, verse 2 this way. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. These words probably sound fairly familiar. It's an echo of Moses' words from Exodus 33 when the Lord proclaimed his glory before Moses. Again, Moses, who had spoken with God frequently, face-to-face as it were, ultimately says to God, show me your glory. In other words, I want to know more about you. And so God says, I'll meet you tomorrow. And so he shows up on the mountain and God hides him away in the cleft of a rock and he passes before him and he proclaims those same words to him. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. One who relents concerning calamity. The Lord is gracious. This word means favor or benevolence. It is his free offering, giving us things that we don't deserve. Grace has been described as God's riches at Christ's expense. He is compassionate or merciful. Some would refer to this as divine pity. This word is related to the term for womb. You think about a mother's compassion for her children. A word related to compassion is mercy. It's often translated that way. It's withholding judgment that is deserved. He is slow to anger. The Hebrew term means something like long-nosed. That's kind of a funny way to think about it. But if you think about how sometimes you respond when someone irritates you, You kind of have to take a deep breath 
right, to kind of, you know, calm yourself down. But that, that uh, slow to anger, that's God taking a deep breath. Meaning he just keeps on taking that breath in. He's very patient with us. He's slow to anger. Abundant in loving kindness. We understand what that word for loving kindness is. It's frequently used to describe the covenant faithfulness of God. And he says, one who relents concerning calamity. The word for relent can be translated as remorse or sorrow, and calamity is wickedness or something bad. God doesn't rejoice in calamity. He doesn't take pleasure in condemning the wicked. Instead, he would be inclined to forgive. Well, the godly appreciate and apply these things. They appreciate and apply the glory of God in their lives. So I ask you again, are you a godly person? I think that we would all agree we live in an ungodly society. By that, I mean a society that is bent away from the true knowledge of God. A society that refuses to behold the splendor and majesty of the God of the Bible so as to honor him. We see their lack of understanding the nature of the true and living God played out in their everyday decisions. They fail to appreciate and apply the character of God. We live in an ungodly society and we often struggle with how to respond to them. This has often been the case for the people of God. Our struggle may be as Lot who the Holy Spirit says, was tormented in his soul because of the ungodliness of the Sodomites around him. Second Peter chapter 2. Seeing the ungodliness of those around us, though sometimes we cannot break from it, for whatever reason, we're in the context of it, we're surrounded by it, and it vexes our souls as it did Lot. Our struggle may be as Asaph, as he looked around at the prosperity of the wicked and almost fell into envy. That's in Psalm 73. Our struggle may be against what David cautioned in Psalm 1. Sometimes we struggle with walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. We are tempted to walk in their way, to follow along with their ideology. Even still, our struggle may be like that of Jonah. Jonah would have been outwardly considered a godly man. He was a prophet of the Lord. He received direct revelation from God. He was even used by the Lord to speak encouragement to King Jeroboam II during the divided kingdom, not too long before Israel fell to Assyria. If Jonah were alive today, he would have been an avid churchgoer. He would have sat in the pew next to you every Sunday. He would have been active in ministry, maybe even a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a leader, an encourager, an example in the body. And yet for all that Jonah knew about the true and living God, for all the ways in which God had used Jonah to speak on his behalf, for all of his devotion to the people of God, Jonah struggled with the ungodliness of the Assyrians. He did so much that when he was commissioned to preach to them, he ran full throttle in the opposite direction. And you may be tempted to do this when faced with ungodliness. You may be tempted to just shrug your shoulders and write off both sinner and sin to the judgment of God, to suppose they're too far gone for the gospel. But is that a godly response? Again, as we transition to the study of the book of Jonah for our gatherings on Sunday morning, I think that's the purpose for this book. It's to help us to understand what it means to be godly. Again, godliness is a believer's appreciation and application of God and his character 
in our everyday life. The book focuses in not on Jonah's prophecy per se, though we will see that, not on Nineveh and the Assyrians per se, though we will see that, but really the focus in the book of Jonah is Jonah himself. It's his heart attitude as a prophet of the Lord, as one of God's people. Jonah's failure, as is often our failure, is that he failed to view the character of God as the primary lens through which he was to view all other people, all other people, even the ungodly. Thus, our response to the ungodly and to their sin ought not to be disgust and disinterest, but rather it ought to begin where the glory of the character of God begins. It ought to begin with compassion. The compassion of God is a theme that will show up multiple times in the book of Jonah. Well, in the book of Jonah, there are four chapters. You've probably heard much about the book of Jonah over the years. A broad outline for these chapters will show the compassion of the Lord at work, both in the life of Jonah as well in the lives of the ungodly. Jonah is all about how God commissions Jonah to go to Nineveh, a pagan city, to preach. Jonah refused. He's chastised by the Lord. He ends up doing a 180 and commits to going to preach anyway. He preaches the people repent, and then Jonah is angry afterward at their repentance. A broad outline then, picking up on the theme of compassion, we'll see in chapter 1, compassion sent. In chapter 2, compassion sought, sought by Jonah himself. In chapter 3, compassion sought once again, this time sought by Nineveh, the Assyrians. In chapter 4, compassion shown. I'll make a number of other comments here before we get into our study of the book of Jonah, just as we're thinking about what the book of Jonah is and where it falls in the context of the Bible. We often speak of the Bible as literature. We were just studying a book in the New Testament, the book of Philippians. Now we're studying a book in the Old Testament in a section typically referred to as the Minor Prophets. In the Jewish Bible, we would see three primary divisions, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law would be the law, the first five books of Moses. The prophets would be the prophets, as you would expect. And the writings is basically everything else. In our English Bibles, we divide it a bit differently. You see the law first, of course. Then we see the historical books, Joshua through Esther. Then we see poetic books, and those are Job ending with the Song of Solomon the major prophets, and then the minor prophets, and Jonah is, falls in the context of the minor prophets. We also talk about methods of interpretation of the Bible as we think about the Bible as literature. To refer to the Bible as literature is to recognize its various means of communication. A basic definition of literature is that it is a written work. It may perhaps be a collection or an individual piece. What often makes literature so impactful is the way that it is written. Good literature is true to life. It involves content that is understandable and relatable. All literature communicates something. Good literature communicates that something well. Within the context of literature, we often discuss genre. Genre is a way of referring to a particular category of literature. Literature can be written in many different ways. You can write a letter to communicate something. You can write a story. You can write poem, poetry and various other forms. Stories, of course, depict people, places, and things which, in the case of good stories, are understandable, relatable, and true to life. 
Stories tend to grip us perhaps more than other forms of literature because a bridge between a story and real life is often very short. For example, it's easier to picture yourself in a story as either a main character or a supporting character than perhaps to sort through the imagery of a poem or a structured prose letter. Nevertheless, story or narrative, poetry and letter are three different genres of literature and all three of these we find in the Bible frequently. Narrative is most of what we read in the Bible, historical accounts, story, written in story form. Poetry is just what you would think. It's a poetic books like Psalm, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and letter form is just like we studied the book of Philippians. To speak of the Bible of literature, then, is to recognize it as a written work, composed but with various categories of writing instead of intended to communicate something in the case of the Bible, it's literature that communicates the glory of God. It speaks of his goodness, his creation, his purposes in creation, his glory, his power, his character, his will. We read Psalm 19 a while back, and it talked through all of what the word of God does in the lives of believers. It is as the Son communicates, as the Son blesses all of creation, so the word of God blesses all of God's people. That is why Paul says that all scripture is profitable. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture, no matter the genre or the category of literature, reveals him. It reveals God in all of his glory. But we just spent time, again, in one genre of literature, a letter written by Paul the Apostle to the church at Philippi. And we were encouraged as we read through line by line, paragraph by paragraph, section by section, the book of Jonah is obviously a different genre of literature. It is narrative. It is historical narrative, to be precise. This is not myth. It is not fable. It is not legend. It is history recorded in the pages of scripture. It is a story of a prophet named Jonah who lived many years ago. His call by the Lord to prophesy to a particular people, his response to that call, and the Lord's response to him. And it is narrative, or simply a historical account, since it is narrative, we use a slightly different method of interpretation. We don't go line by line, sentence by sentence. Instead, we look at the story as a whole, and we think through the movements of the story and try to learn from that. We take a look at what is said about the characters, what is said about the story, if there's any particular commentary, if there are theological concerns, where it takes place in the context of the Bible as a whole, what happens as the narrative progresses, what conflicts arise as the narrative continues. For interpretation, we also make observations, again, about the people who are there, how they engage with others. This includes observations about God. As we go through chapter one, for example, an outline will revolve around all the major movements of that chapter. We see Jonah's commissioning in verse one. We see a conflict in verses two through three. We see the consequence in verses four through six, the confession in verses seven through nine, the concern in 10 through 13, the cry in verse 14, the calm in verse 15, and the commitment in verse 16. In chapter 1, you'll notice that there are actually 17 verses. That 17th verse really goes more with chapter 2, and so we'll keep it there. But we view Jonah as historical narrative. We also view it as prophetic narrative. We identify a prophetic narrative by a simple formula. Now the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, something of that nature. Anytime we see that formula in a narrative text, we know that we're entering into the realm of prophecy. 
Prophetic narrative focuses in on the life of a prophet, as you would assume. One who has set up, been set apart by God to prophesy, to speak on his behalf. They receive direct revelation from God, a message directly from him to communicate to people. That's always the expectation of a prophet. The word of God goes forth. The prophet, in turn, speaks as a mouthpiece for God. His authority is none. His will is irrelevant. The creator God, the sovereign of the universe, is speaking on his own authority through the prophet to communicate his will to the people. Moses is the prototypical prophet. The words written about Moses after his death are found at the end of Deuteronomy and were certainly true. Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in all the sight of Israel. Nevertheless, all biblical prophets are patterned after him and ultimately pointing to the prophet who was to come. Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. These are Moses' words. A prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to him all that I command him. And whoever shall not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And it goes on from there. All of the prophets who came after Moses were patterned after him. All who listened to the prophets listened for one who was like him and hoped for the prophet who was to come. Even up into the days of John the Baptist, when he came preaching in the wilderness, he was asked in John chapter 1, who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, no. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. John knew what they were asking about. He knew that they were still looking for the one who was to come was ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jonah, therefore, was a prophet in a long line of succession of prophets whose job it was simply to speak from God, to announce judgment, to proclaim blessing, to speak on behalf of the Lord in view of his coming. That was his job. It wasn't to pronounce his own judgment. It wasn't to react of his own volition to the things he saw around him. It was to simply speak on behalf of God, to represent him, to reflect his character, and to let the people know what thus saith the Lord. Well, thinking again more broadly about the book of Jonah, what are the themes that we see there? First, we think about and we see the sovereignty of God repeatedly in the book of Jonah. He is the creator of God. Again, Jonah is going to refer to him as the God of heaven who created the sea and the dry land. Thus, he has sovereignty over nature. We see God hurling a great wind. We see a mighty tempest coming as a result of Jonah's disobedience. We see a great fish being controlled by the Lord. We see a plant rising up out of nowhere and then dying as a result of a worm that was also appointed. We see 
at the end of Jonah's story, the sun beating down on Jonah's poor little head as he was wallowing in misery and anger and frustration about God's judgment. We also see God's sovereignty over man. Of course, God's call of Jonah the prophet, his subsequent chastisement of Jonah, Jonah's recommittal of his vow before the Lord, the fear of the sailors who said their vows to the Lord, the call of Jonah again, the repentance of the Ninevites who seemed to submit themselves to the will of the Lord. Another major theme we see is the danger of disobedience. And I think this is significant as we read through the, letter, the book of Jonah. Disobedience before the Lord, disobeying God is dangerous. It puts us in real danger. Jonah put himself in danger through his disobedience. The people of Nineveh put themselves in danger as a result of their disobedience. We see the concept of repentance. The sailors seem to be repentant or at least humbling themselves before God. Jonah appeared to be repentant and disobeying God's will. And we see the repentance of the Ninevites in chapter 3. Also, one of the other major themes that we see in the book of Jonah, as I mentioned earlier, is the compassion of the Lord. And we see God talking about compassion or pity toward the end of the letter. But as we read through, we really come to understand that his compassion has been at work throughout the entire book. And this is the, really the, the primary way that we see God's character at work in the letter. His compassion is at work, aimed both at Jonah and ultimately at the Ninevites. Again, to be godly is to appreciate and to apply the character of God in all of life. Jonah ought to have acted in a godly way, but failed to see, as we will see, he failed to because he was so caught up in his reaction to the ungodliness of others. Jonah's response to the ungodliness of others ought to have been to reflect the compassion of God. As for him, so for us. This historical account of the life of the prophet Jonah will remind us that as a church of Jesus Christ, as we pursue godliness... Our duty is not to be caught up in reacting to the ungodliness of others, but rather seek to reflect the compassion of God. Now, yes, all of that was introduction. For the rest of our time this morning, we'll begin to take a look at chapter 1. As I mentioned before, chapter 1, the title of, that I've given to this chapter is Compassion Sent. And that'll make sense as we continue to go throughout. I'm going to read chapter 1 now for us as we begin our study. Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us his innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's have a prayer before we start. Father, thank you again for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for this book documenting the life of Jonah. Thank you for all of the different ways that you communicate your truth to us. Thank you for reminding us. That godliness is not in our reaction of disgust or disdain to those who are wicked, but it's in our uh, application of your character. It's as we respond to you and your goodness and your mercy and your grace and your compassion as we seek to be like you and to show, to bear that witness to the world. Lord, help us to learn as we study this book, this account of your prophet Jonah. Help us to be humbled before it and help us to be encouraged so that we may go forth as your people called to proclaim the truths of the gospel. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart as we embark on the study would indeed be, be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, I already gave you an outline for the chapter first thing we see in verse 1 is Jonah's commissioning. Jonah's commissioning. Again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Again, we see that same formula that we would expect to see as a prophet is being called, as he's being set apart. Jonah is referred to, again, one other time in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings 14. He prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who was one of the kings of Israel, again, after the kingdom was divided. That would have been sometime around 790 to 750 B.C. Jonah's life is also referenced in the New Testament by Jesus himself. In Matthew, Jesus refers to the sign of the prophet Jonah, Matthew 12, 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The life of Jonah, the prophet, was used as an illustration just as he was literally in the belly of a fish. Jesus says, I will literally be in the heart of the earth. 
Well, back to our text again, the expectation for Jonah again in a long line of succession of prophets at this point would have been for him to simply receive the word of the Lord, to hear the instruction, to go and to preach. But that's not what we see. And so we come to the first, the primary conflict in the story. Again, verses two and three. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid a fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Two things you see repeated there. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. The city is called Nineveh. It's to the people of the Assyrians. But instead, he went to Tarshish. That was his goal. And that's repeated three times for emphasis. He rose to flee to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going away to Tarshish. He paid his fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. It's mentioned three times to emphasize Jonah is going, if you were to look on a map, in the complete opposite direction of where he was called to go. He was supposed to go to that great city. Instead, he arose and fled. Tarshish is not only in a complete opposite direction, but it's across the Mediterranean. So he had to rent this boat. He had to pay his fare to get on this boat. Again, this is shocking in the course of this story. A prophet's supposed to just speak on behalf of the Lord, period. Go and speak. It was a hard job, but it was a simple job. But Jonah didn't go and speak. He rose and he ran away. As we're thinking through this narrative, again, that's the primary conflict. If the story continued as it began, Jonah would have simply obeyed and gone to Nineveh to preach. Now, a number of questions arise at this point. Jonah is fleeing to Tarshish. Why did he run away? Why did he refuse the commissioning that the Lord had gave him? There are a number of suggestions to answer this question. One is that Jonah was simply afraid to go to Nineveh. Nineveh had a bad reputation in his day. I mentioned already that it was the capital of the people of the Assyrians. The nation itself was known for its pursuit of perfecting torture for its criminals and prisoners of war. In fact, the prototype of crucifixion was said to have begun at the hands of the Ninevites. They didn't nail people to wood. They typically would impale them and allow their bodies to hang. Jonah was simply not happy to have to go to such a wretched place among such wicked people. One author says this, and I quote, the Assyrians were well known for the brutal atrocities they inflicted on their war captives, again, impaling survivors in a stake in front of their towns, erecting pillars of skulls from slain warriors, nobles, chiefs, officials, hanging heads around their necks to demonstrate the power of their god, Asher. The city was known also for its idolatry. There were many temples to many different gods located there. Another suggestion as to why Jonah fled related to the first was that Jonah was a patriot. He was a patriot and a good Jewish man. He wanted to maintain the purity of the worship of God and couldn't stand the thought that these pagan people, these wicked people, could potentially be exposed to the goodness of God's salvation. This is further cemented in Jonah's own words in chapter 4, verse 2. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious, a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, 
and relenting from disaster. In, in other words, Jonah's saying, Lord, I knew that you would be gracious to these people. I knew that you would save them according to your grace and compassion. And you know what? They simply did not deserve it. So I did not want to go to preach your word to them. And again, before I move on, we have to ask the question, can we relate to that thought? We have a strong patriotic pull in America, like many other nations, I suppose. Christianity in particular has been so intertwined with American patriotism at times, the comments of some Christians, particularly on social issues, are very difficult to resolve with biblical Christianity. Perhaps there are some times when we think that other nations of the world and the choices that they make make it as if America, this Christian nation, as some suppose, this God-fearing nation is simply against the world of pagans, and we know that that's simply not true. We may pray and sing, God bless America, but God is simply under no obligation to do so. But I ask again, can you, Christian, relate to the sentiment of Jonah? When you take a look at the wickedness of the nations around us, when you see the choices they make, the wars, the crimes against humanity, particular people groups simply being wiped out, one larger nation invading a smaller nation to do what they want, when you take a look at these kinds of things, do you ever, ever think it would be simpler if we just got rid of them? If the judgment of God simply fell upon them? Perhaps it's not so grand a thought for you. Maybe it's not some other nation. Maybe it's a particular people group. Certainly after 9-11, Muslims were suspicious to, to everyone. Any Muslim that we saw became a, a, a person of suspicion. Even closer to home is the ungodliness, again, of apparently racially motivated assault or murder. We've had a number of those really, um, unfortunately, very well publicized in recent years. Or else gun violence that seems to have ramped up and appears to be out of control across the U.S. The wickedness of the abortion industry, the way people have responded, again, to Roe v. Wade being overturned. Arguments levied against those who support the life of the unborn. Other issues, again, like LGBTQ and gender confusion. We tend to react to those issues so strongly at times. Again, with distrust, disgust, frustration, maybe even hatred. We express those feelings on Facebook, Twitter. We react to those things around the water cooler, among our peers at school. We carry our godly merit badges and proclaim our disdain for sin while still loving the sinner as loudly and as often as we can. And all of that, we may well, like Jonah, be running in the opposite direction, fleeing from the Lord. That's essentially what we do. We distance ourselves from the presence of the Lord, from his character when we respond so negatively. We ought to, as godly individuals, be reflecting the character of God, not running from it. Again, Titus chapter 3, we read earlier, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for good deed. And this one always gets me in verse 2 of Titus chapter 3, to malign no one. I think that's where we struggle the most, the way we speak about others, the way we speak about events, the way we speak about people who are carried away in certain events and certainly ungodly actions. This text says that we ought to malign no one, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Because we also once were foolish ourselves. But it's the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind. It's his mercy poured out upon us richly that saved us. 
We know it's more than that, though. Not only are we called to refrain from maligning others, to be peaceful, gentle, show every consideration. But as we've discussed many times before, though we are not prophets, we are called to preach as the people of God. Are we not? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus, before he left the earth, left these words to his disciples and to us through them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I've said this before some time ago, but that command is everything that the church is to do, everything that the church is to be involved in. From the process of baptizing those who come to faith in Christ, to teaching those who come to faith in Christ all that Christ has commanded. That is the mission of the church. That is what we've been called to by our commander-in-chief. We don't need another commissioning. We don't need to hear an audible voice from the Lord. We already have his word. We already know what the commission is. We've been set apart. We've been called just as God has been doing, unfolding his plan of redemption throughout the ages, beginning all the way back in Genesis when God called Abraham. And he set apart his family. He said, I'm going to bless you and your descendants to be a blessing to all the peoples, all the family groups of the earth. And from Abraham and through his descendants all the way down to the Messiah who came forth from the lineage of Abraham. And through the Messiah, all people are blessed. So we get down to Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. And we say of the Messiah, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We have been given this commission, this charge by our commander-in-chief. We have been called to preach and to proclaim the good news of Jesus. That ought to be our primary focus. The people, as stated in Matthew 28, are any people. The ethne is the word in the original, just refers to ethnic groups. Any people groups that we encounter, any and all, we ought to be making disciples. In our homes, we're to make disciples. Our children, our grandchildren, our spouses, our siblings. In the city square, we're to make disciples. At work, as far as we're able, we're to make disciples. We need to be creative in some of those spheres, but that's what we're called to do. In our neighborhoods, we need to be making disciples. Certainly, we cannot go everywhere. That's why we partner with others in ministry who go out into the world to make disciples. But we ought to be in the business of making disciples. To do anything less is to run away from our responsibility to the Lord. It's to flee from his presence. Do you see that as your responsibility? As the people of God, as those who are called by Christ's name, do you see that as your responsibility? Just as Jonah was a prophet and he was called to simply declare the word of God, not add anything to it, not take anything away from it, simply declare what thus saith the Lord. So are you called to declare what thus saith the Lord with regard to his salvation. That is your duty. That is your job. That is our job collectively as his people. Do you see that? Do you hear that? Anything less, and we're running away from the presence of the Lord. We're running away from his calling. 
God is the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Thus all who are in the sea and the dry land ought to hear the message that he has given for his church to proclaim. That is our responsibility. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh and to preach the message that the Lord had given to him. In disobedience, he ran away. He ran away. It cost him dearly, but he ran away. He ran and attempted to hide from the Lord, but the Lord was unwilling to allow him to remain in sin, and so there were consequences. And that's where we'll pick up next week. For our final thought for this week, I want to remind you again that the Lord has placed a calling on each of our lives. We're called to godliness. Again, godliness is the appreciation and application of his character in our lives. Again, Jonah was a prophet but did not act in a godly way. He disobeyed the command of God by failing to apply the character of God in his dealing with Nineveh. We, too, may disobey the command of God by failing to apply the character of God in our dealings with others. If you know that that is you, repent of that today. If you know that that is you, as you go out today, as you go out this week, seek to obey the command that God has placed on your life, the calling that God has placed on your life to preach the gospel, to make disciples. We pray that the Lord would make that true of all of us. Father, thank you again for your word, which is true. Thank you for how you sanctify us by your word. Thank you for the reminders that we have in the book of Jonah, that you have placed a calling on each of our lives, Lord, that you have set us apart to proclaim the truths of the gospel while we are not prophets proclaiming your word by means of direct revelation, you have already revealed your will. And your will is that everyone bow the knee to Jesus Christ, that everyone come before him in humility and bow their knee in humble obedience to his will, to his rule, trusting in his salvation. Father, would you help us as we go this week to bear the good news of Jesus Christ on our lips, to bear the good news of Jesus Christ by our actions for your glory in Christ's name.